Right. Thank you, worship team. Well, good morning again. That's tall. All right. So we're going to be... we're going to be in Isaiah again this week. If you were here with us last week, we were in Isaiah chapter 40, which is kind of the turning point of the book. <clears throat> God has promised restoration to his people, this faithful remnant that will uh, persist through exile, and, and that this remnant, they can trust uh, it, that God is faithful and he is able because there is no other like God. There is no other God. And so therefore, Judah we learned last week they should respond with faithful, faithfulness, as should we, as we depend on God. Today we're going to be in Isaiah 52 and 53, uh, and, and this is the, the classic man of sorrows passage. It, it probably made today's song choice uh, a little bit easier. Um, so, nice, Matt. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, for your context clues here, in between Isaiah 40 and 53, we, we see a lot about this promised restoration for the nation uh, we see punishment for, for the oppressor. In this case, that's Babylon, because we're talking about Judah. We see the fall of the Babylonians, the rise of the man who will send Judah back to the promised land. He's even named, and his name is Cyrus. And if you, if you know your Bible history, you know that Cyrus is the man that is led by God to end Judah's exile. He almost seems to believe in God, but the end, at the end of the day, he's an unbeliever who's used by God for this deliverance. You might be saying, yes, 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 I've read the Old Testament. I know who Cyrus is, but, but Judah didn't. Not at this point. In fact, at the time of writing, Judah's still 100 years away from being exiled. And then that exile's only going to last for 70 years. So they're 170 years removed from Cyrus, and yet he's named in Isaiah's writings here. Isaiah uh, isn't just giving uh, hope to Judah's current situation. Uh, under the reign of Hezekiah, he's speaking to a future problem in between where we were last week to this week. Uh, remember, God said that he's going to wait until Hezekiah has passed to, to pass this judgment, this exile on Israel. And Isaiah has spent the bulk of his writing telling of this judgment, but again, this is a long ways off. We have a long way to get there. It's like a cloud that's looming over the nation. Now, he's given them hope. He's given them this promised restoration. He's given that by name through Cyrus, but that's not their final salvation. That's their physical movement back to the promised land. And it's not our final salvation, is it, either? Judah and Israel, they're exiled for disobeying God, for being unfaithful in the covenant, and they need spiritual rebirth to overcome that. We know that the faithful remnant are going to be restored physically from exile, but at the end of the day, even that faithful remnant, they have a sin nature as well. So when we get to Isaiah 52, 53, we're seeing an even bigger promise of God, the salvation of God's people from their sins. Isaiah was calling the people of Judah back to proper covenantal relationship with God. He was reminding his generation of the sinful condition in which they were living and its consequences. Isaiah prophesied Judah would be taken into exile because of this condition. And keeping this background in mind, we can see the parallels when we go through this next chapter here uh, in Isaiah, where we're going to see parallels with iniquity, grief, transgression, sin. Combining this language uh, with the references to Levitical atonement sacrifices, these, these make sure to show Judah their role in the suffering servant prophecy. And if we understand this as prophecy, the purpose of the message is going to become clear. It's to instruct Israel that the servant, who we're going to find is the Messiah, 
He's going to come. He's going to bear their sin. He's going to claim righteousness for them. And he's going to encourage them towards repentance. The way that this is communicated in Isaiah here is is through what we call the fourth servant song. There's a a series in this last half of Isaiah, there's four instances where we get these sections of text, these prophecies about an unnamed servant. And and now after we read this as modern readers, we're probably going to be very easily uh, persuaded to jump right to to Jesus. Um, and, And that's true, and I would agree with you, um, and that's the conclusion we're going to come to. Uh, but again, we have the whole picture of Scripture. The readers of the original text, they, they don't. And so today we want to see how this would have been understood by Judah reading this pre-exile, and then see how it is fulfilled. If, if we're going to say it's, Ju- it's, it's Jesus who's going to save Judah and us through his death on the cross, and that that's prophesied here, we need to justify that by the Word of God. And to do that, we have to begin at the end of chapter 52. Here we find there's a response. We get the response first, and then we're going to find a report in chapter 53. And it kind of seems backwards that you're getting the response to the report and then the report. Uh, but this orients us to ask questions, to be curious. And so as we, we begin this passage, we're going we're gonna to be asking questions about the response. Why did they react that way? What do they, what do they mean when they say that the servant was marred beyond human semblance? And so we're going to start today with that response. It's in chapter 52, verse 13 through 15. It says this, Behold, my servant will act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So they've come to this understanding after the report and after seeing the servant. So as we continue here, we're going to be, be beginning in, in, chap, in verse 13. The audience, they're introduced to this servant, and they're given some descriptors of who the servant is, and the first descriptor lies in the name. He's called the servant. God calls him my servant. And this is significant. We've got two reasons that's significant. And first, it clarifies the servant's role. His purpose is to serve on behalf of somebody else, and God says, that's me. This identifier, it makes the actions of the servants in the later verses of this uh, section here, it, it gives them clarity and purpose. Second, this descriptor, it clarifies who the servant is serving on behalf of. And later, when men turn their faces away from the servant, this identifier makes it clear that the servant is not here to please men, who will turn away from him, but instead to please God. That said, before we've even gotten to the report, this alone is a strange description and a strange response. Verse 13, we have the servant being exalted. And it's said three different ways. He will be high, he will be lifted up, he shall be exalted. We have a threefold proclamation just to make sure that there's emphasis on this. The servant will be exalted. And since God is speaking here, it's kind of odd that somebody else is lifted up, isn't it? And it's something that we can come back to once we've identified the servant correctly. But even stranger is that the exalted servant is of a marred appearance beyond human semblance. And this is, it's probably not the ideal thing you'd, you'd get when you think, oh, there's, a, there's, a, there's an emphasis on him being lifted up and exalted. Why is he marred? 
but we're going to find that this broken and battered servant, he's going to be completely worthy of exaltation. We're also introduced in verse 15 to the many, and, and the catch with the many is that that's all we get about the many. It's just that they're the, the many. We don't get a name. We don't get an identifier. Uh, and it's, it, there's a bunch of possibilities. They could be the nations who now understand who the servant is. They understand the work of the servant. And, and, and whoever they really are isn't going to change our understanding of the text, but more importantly, their reaction and response to the servant and his, and his work is what we need to take notice of. And here we see that they're astonished, they're appalled at the servant, and this is because of the appearance of the servant. He's beyond human semblance. Verse 15 started us off with this word, sprinkle. Kind of a weird word, but if you look at our context clues here, some of your translations might say startled, which you could argue to fit the context, but sprinkle, I would argue, is the right translation here, and it, it comes with an interesting context. If any of you have made it all the way through Leviticus, I know it's a task, but if you've made it all the way through, you're going to see this word introduced for various sacrifices, which is important because we're going to see the word guilt offering later. And so sometimes for the guilt offering, sometimes for restitution or for, for atonement, we see the priest would sprinkle water or blood, depending on the Levitical law, on the altar as part of the ritual. And so we don't see a designation of if he's sprinkling blood or if he's sprinkling water, and that's okay because we don't need to read too much into it. We've got to remember the audience, though. Judah is still doing these sacrifices. They're still living under Levitical law. And so we don't have to specify if they're doing blood or water or what type of sacrifice or atonement or guilt offering this is. The imagery is there for them. And it's going to lead our train of thought and theirs as we see what kind of sacrifice is going to be made in the report of chapter 53. And so as we look going forward into 53, we've got to ask, what does this report about the servant say? Who is the servant? Is he the Messiah? If he is, why? So let's pick up chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And if we take this from the top, we see there's this designation as a young plant. Some of your, your translations might, might call it a shoot. Uh, and this is a root out of dry ground. And again, we, it's kind of an odd descriptor. This whole passage is not what you might expect out of a Messiah. But at the same time, it's what you, what we, Israel and what we need out of a Messiah. And so it's an odd descriptor that this servant is supposed to save God's people. A root in dry ground might seem to be the wrong choice. And certainly that's what the people thought. Why didn't God call him a strong tower or like a cedar of, of Lebanon? And so we have to go back through some of Isaiah's previous writings to make that make sense. If we go to Isaiah uh, chapter 11, verse 1, we read it this morning. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. We see there's the Davidic line, and it's going to bear fruit. This is where the Messiah is going to come from, from the line of David. And then if we jump forward to 11, verse 10, he says this, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of his shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. We see this root described as, right, as the righteous one in chapter 53, verse 11, which is a major statement, something the only the Messiah would be worthy of, but really it's something only God is worthy of and is able to account to others. Remember, God accounted Abraham righteous in Genesis. We read these statements uh, out, out of places like Psalm 14, Psalm 53, or Romans 3. We see there's none righteous, no, not one. The servant is beginning to be painted as this awaited Messiah from the line of David. And so if you, if you dig into the research here, scholars all agree that the young plant is, is referring to the Davidic line and, the, and it's the house of David. But the question here is, what is the dry ground referring to? And we're going to have to answer that question as we look at uh, the identity of the servant. And so what we really need to know is there's, there's a few possibilities. It could be that the house of David at the time of the servant is in a diminished state, or it could be simply that uh, the servant is going to be from a lowly background or that Israel is spiritually dry. And so for Judah reading this, knowing that the Messiah is going to come from the house of David during a time where the household's no power and the land is spiritually dry is going to add the, another detail to their list to be able to find who the Messiah is. And while we are clearly alluding to the Messiah here in verse 2, verse 3, it tells us the response to him by the very people that needed him. He was a man of sorrows. And one commentator uh, will, will tell you this. He says, suffering was not something that he was just peripherally acquainted with. It wasn't just, you know, once in a while. It was a pivotal factor in his life. And, and when people mentioned the servant, they would automatically uh, connect him with this time of suffering. Not only that, but he's acquainted with God grief. And as we read through the rest of the passage, the reasons for this become obvious. He's rejected by his own people. He's persecuted to the point of death. The very people he came to save despise him, reject him, won't even look at him. So the question here is, why? Why would someone put themselves through that for people that won't acknowledge you, won't even look at you? 
So if we continue on through verses 4 to 6, we can unpack that question. But it boils down to this. The servant, he suffered in order to save the very people that afflicted him, that one day they may see how much he loves them. This is seen through the servant's vicarious suffering. The servant suffers greatly in the place of those who not only deserve the suffering, but are now going to inflict suffering upon him. Again, as modern readers, we're very quick to go, oh, that's Jesus. It, it, it makes sense, right? Maybe you've heard the phrase, Jesus in my place. It's, it's, we used it this summer in our, our summer series for a youth group. It's probably the quickest way to say the gospel message forwards. Um, but remember, this substitutionary death of Christ is not known to Judah at this point. They're getting, again, a checklist for who the Messiah is. What's he going to be like? And so, substitutionary death, dying in the place of somebody else, it's not unknown, but it's not also terribly common uh, in, in the ancient world. We see it in ancient Mesopotamian royal culture, where someone can die in place of the king to prolong that king's reign. But that's really pretty different. We look at biblical examples. We see in the Old Testament in Exodus, Moses offers himself as a substitute for sinful Israel. In 32, 32, he says, But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Please take me out of the book of life if you'll let them in. Another time this, this appears is the Passover. This is probably the most memorable one. The blood of the lamb signals to God the, the pass, to pass over this house. We see the substitutionary themes throughout the book of Leviticus, chapter 10 and chapter 16, bearing the sin of another. It's ingrained into Israelite life, but to this degree has not happened yet. And so this idea of, of guilt, there, there's an obligation to discharge the guilt that arises from a situation of guilt. If we're looking at the Levitical law, there needs to be a compensatory payment because of the guilt. And it functions both in the context of legal and Levitical concepts because the two are really integrated in Israel's society. And so here we see the Messiah. He's making payment for someone else's guilt. We can read in those three verses here. He says, He has borne our grief. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But the victory is won through that same work. By his wounds, we are healed. We see the victory over sin is won for the people of God for the many, for you and me, but that victory comes with a great cost. As we look at verses 7 and 8, we see that the servant, he's killed in our place. He's cut off from the land of the living. And in verse 9, he's buried. And if sin is being forgiven here, in our healing from our transgressions, we have to ask, who can do this? Who can forgive a sin? And we know that this is only God. And the audience knows that this is only God. This is going to help us know, again, who to look for as the Messiah. And as we, we look at the substitutionary aspect of this, the Messiah dying and atoning for their sins, it's, it's sometimes easy to brush past that the Messiah, that the servant is innocent in this whole thing. We go back to verse 4. They esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. They thought the servant deserved the punishment that was coming to him, that they were inflicting on him. They thought God put this on him because of the guilt of the servant. And, and in fact, in doing so, they look past his innocence, but they also look past this beautiful act of love that he's giving them, that no one else could show them a greater act of love. They assumed his guilt when, in fact, he was carrying theirs. 
And verse 6 shows that they recognize this after the fact. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone. And his innocence is further mentioned in verse 8 and when we say, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And in verse 9 it says, he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. He's innocent. And this leads us to the next verse, verse 10. It begins with the word, yet. Even though he was innocent, here is what the Lord willed. In the last three verses, we see this plan of God it comes to fruition. It becomes to be clear. God's plan here is to exalt and prosper his righteous servant because he was willing to bear the sins of the many. Remember back to the beginning of this passage, we read the response to the report. It started with this threefold exaltation. Now here at the end of the passage, we see God has exalted his servant. After living an innocent life to be wrongfully punished, the servant bestows this undeserved, gracious gift on the people of God. Salvation from sin. But more than that, they are restored permanently in their relationship to God. And all of this gives Judah and it gives us, the modern readers, the outline for what the Messiah is going to do and what to look for in the Messiah. But I think even more, it gives us a look at the true heart of salvation. The Messiah is not here just to give political restoration. That's what Israel is looking for. And if you look at the life of Jesus, that's still what they were looking for. But the Messiah is here. He's going to bring forgiveness. Remember, Judah and, exi- uh, Judah and Israel, they're exiled. Why? Because they had uh, acted wrongly in their covenantal relationship with God. They, in fact, were far from God. And so when we look here, even though God gives this faithful remnant restoration from exile, they're still a people, they're under Old Testament law, and they can't fulfill the law. They need to look forward to this Messiah that's described here. Not for political protection or restoration, but as a means for righteousness, for the restoration that they really need, spiritual restoration. And this Messiah that they're looking for, as we look from the passage, he's going to be from the line of David, He's going to be coming when Israel is spiritually dry ground. He's going to be well acquainted with suffering. It's going to be inflicted upon him by the very people he came to save, and he's going to take the sins of the people on himself as a guilt offering, a means to make the people whole again through his innocent life, his wrongful death, and his glorious resurrection. The people are going to be healed and counted as righteous. And so as we have that checklist to work from, we can begin to look at who is the servant and and we can look at historical debates about this. And some people get caught up in in this context of exile within the book of uh, Isaiah. But who does God have Judah deliver? uh, Who delivers them from exile? He's named. It's Cyrus. Named 170 years ahead of his time. And by the way, Uh, This is not something that Cyrus fits into. We look at the checklist. Cyrus is not from the line of David. He's not forsaken by his people, leading a humble life of of suffering. He doesn't die on behalf of his people for their sins. Uh, Other people have searched historical records to see if somebody else fits. They've looked at rulers. They've looked at leaders of rebellion in Israelite history. But at the end of the day, if we look at the life, death, 
uh, and resurrection of Jesus, only Jesus fulfills this prophecy. Only Jesus could fulfill this prophecy. And if Jesus does, then it is a mark of his messiahship. Certainly today, we have the full knowledge of the gospel and of our New Testament. We can look at this and we make that jump right away. And it it seems obvious, which is a good thing. Praise God for that, because we can see Jesus in the Old Testament. We can see the coming restoration spiritually for all people. But we have to justify that conclusion by the text. And so, why we have to ask, why is this Jesus? Why does Jesus fit this description of the Messiah? And so, we can first see that Jesus is of the line of David. We have to remember there's that description of him as a shoot, or as a root, in verse 2. This is an important prerequisite for the, for the Messiah. We see in Matthew chapter 1, it says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it starts, it's, it's the part that most people skip over, uh, and, and, and we get to, uh, we start with Abraham, and then we go all the way down, all the way down, and then a few verses later, there's Joseph, husband of Mary. We've made it to Jesus, and we've established the geneal- genealogy in the house of David. And then we can take that genealogy and now we can ask, what was the spiritual state of Israel at the time of Jesus? What was the state of the house of David? And if we look at the house of David, they have at this point, when Jesus is is walking the earth, no authority there under Roman rule. They're looking for a Messiah who's going to come like a judge of the Old Testament and he's going to give them this political, huge restoration. He's going to overcome Rome. But they miss what's predicted in Isaiah 53. We see that the temple in the time of Jesus, it's being used unwisely. If you've read chapter 21 of the book of Matthew, we see Jesus goes into the temple, and, and we all know he flips the table, but we do, he does this, and he cleanses the, the, the temple because there's commerce going on there. The, the temple is not being used as a place of worship anymore. The desire to worship God is far from the hearts of the people. So he cleanses the temple, and when he cleanses the temple, he begins using the temple as it should be. He starts healing people in the temple. And on top of that, we look at the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, we all, well, if you've been in church for any portion of your life, you probably know the Pharisees are supposed to be like the, the, the elitist, uh, you know, the most holiest people, um, and, and that's an outward holiness, and it, it, they're, they're missing the inward holiness as, as we read through the gospel accounts, and Jesus rebukes them again and again and again, and the gospels dis- display them as being ignorant, as proud, spiritually blind. The leaders in the day of Jesus are spiritually blind. Jesus spends so much of his time rebuking their twisting of the word of God, their additions to the word of God. And Israel is certainly dry ground at the time of Jesus, the son of David. If we look, look continuing in Isaiah 53, verse 4, we see the Messiah is going to bear the people's grief. And if you look at the word in, in the Hebrew, we see that this word grief comes with the context of suffering and sickness. And Jesus came, he worked miracles among the people. He healed this woman with chronic bleeding. He healed people in the temple after he cleansed it. He restores sight to the blind. He raises the dead, and he makes the lame walk. Certainly, Jesus uh, is, is bearing the people's grief here. And Matthew chapter 9 tells us the story of the paralytic, and it's an important one because it tells us really what's going on in these uh, healings, this bearing of the people's grief. It says this in Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came into his own city. And behold, the same people... Or some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, 
take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. It's a big claim. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority to, on earth to forgive sins. He said then to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. When the crowd saw it, saw it they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And surely the, the uh, scribes here are, are going to jump to blaspheming because who can forgive sin? They know the answer to the question, so their, their conclusion is logical. Only God can forgive sin. And in Isaiah, we see this servant suffering and dying for what? For the sins of the people. The very sins he's forgiving. And through his death, they're counted righteous. Isaiah 53.11 tells us that they are counted righteous because he has borne their iniquities. Both the healing and the forgiveness of sins are critical identifiers for the servant, the Messiah. Jesus tells of his coming death, and he tells of the forgiveness of sins that are going to come because of that. When he's talking to Nicodemus in John 3, which if, if you haven't looked at that one more closely, there's some really great Old Testament parallels there. The death of the servant is, is, is here to give us a means to identify Jesus as the servant. Isaiah says in, in 53, 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And if you know the story of Jesus, uh, we just went through John, so I know, I know, in fact, we did read this. If you know the story of Jesus here, this, this statement here should ring some bells. Jesus is crucified as a criminal. He's to have a criminal's burial. But instead, in John chapter 19, we read this. In verses 38 to 41, after these things, after the Jesus has been crucified, they're sure he's dead, uh, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. That's a lot. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid, and that's where they lay him to rest. Instead of giving, getting this criminal's burial, he's given this uh, burial of a rich man. Jesus is exalted even in his death. But thankfully for us and for Israel and for really all of humanity, that's not the end of the story. At the end of Isaiah 53, this servant, he's exalted because of bearing, he bore the sins of the many, and he continues to make intercession for him. And if he continues to make intercession, the story's not over yet. And we read three days after his death, Jesus rises from the dead. He establishes his power over sin and death, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on behalf of the many. There's no denying Jesus is both the servant and the Messiah. To be the Messiah, it also means to be the Savior. God gave his Son so that we could be saved from the debt of our sin and the power of sin and Satan. The salvation is now available. Not only that, it's simple to get. We're told, profess Jesus as Lord. Trust in his payment for your sins. 
Now, the best part about this is you can't, out, you can't sin enough that he won't forgive you, but it's not an excuse to try. And if you're not sure about that, check out the ladies' Roman study. They're going to have to talk about that. I know it's in there. Um, but God's forgiveness here is it's abundant. It's overflowing. He knows everything about you. He knows what you've done. And so when he says that that forgiveness is available, he means it. It all comes out of this great love for his people. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 tells us that we love because he first loved us. God shows his love for us in that he's willing to give up his only son, to put him through death on the cross in order for him to bear our sins. And God chose to show us who he is and that he loves us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The death of Jesus was supposed to be Satan's victory. And instead, it was God's victory, and we're now invited to share in that, to look forward to future glory as we look forward to the new creation. So we can also now respond in repentance and the call to salvation, which is freely available, but we can respond also with faithfulness for those of us that are believers. We can continue to trust in the work of Jesus Christ. We can continue to trust in his word and what he said to us, but the proper response that's demanded both by the text and by the work of Jesus is exaltation. That's how the passage begins and it ends. And by exaltation, I mean worship. God's plan all along was to exalt and prosper his servant because he was willing to bear the sins of the many. God's work for you continues now as he even now intercedes for you and he leads you by his spirit. So we're going to now take some time. We're going to respond together to God. We're going to exalt the name of Jesus. Let's stand together and pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for uh, the understanding that it gives us that, that we get to see uh, the progression of you establishing Jesus as the Messiah. God, that there are things even in that that point to him being the only son of God. And God, we're thankful for the work of that. We're thankful for, uh, God, the willingness of both you and Jesus. That God, even though the suffering was wrongful uh, and difficult, God, that um, Jesus continued to go through this for us to bear our sins. God, we're thankful for that and we seek to respond to you now. We seek to lift up the name of Jesus in worship. It's in your name we pray. Amen.